0: you. Mm-hmm. Empire. Tales of the strange and unsettling.
1: This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode forty-three: The mysterious death of Olivia Maybell. It is often said that becoming a parent is one of the greatest joys that a human being can experience. An expansion of one's capacity for love and joy that is beyond description. Something that has to be experienced in order to be understood. As with any great emotional gain, this experience comes with incredible vulnerability. Parenthood is a beautiful privilege that can, unfortunately be taken from you by the universe as quickly as it is bestowed upon you. And the flip side of that coin brings with it a level of psychological devastation that similarly could not be imagined. The loss of a child is without a doubt the most terrifying prospect floating in the mind of any young parent. To have the door opened on a deeper, more connected and joyful dimension of the world, only to have it slammed in your face, taken from you, is an event that many people never recover from. This level of loss often leaves the survivor feeling empty, isolated, and racked with guilt. Far too often these losses lead to deep, lifelong depression that many find too heavy a burden to bear. Living in a reality inside their own minds, filled with memories unattainable, torturous reimaginings of the life and loss of their beloved child, for so many, this psychological devastation is beyond mending. It is an emotional prison with one perceivable escape, death. In the early spring of 1990, this terrible circumstance is exactly what befell a young family living in Selena, Texas. Following the birth of their son, Aiden, in 1983, Travis and Olivia Maybell had purchased the Footlights Ranch A sprawling, four-bedroom home on 15 acres of open Texas prairie land, just north of Dallas. While the large property was purchased in hopes of expanding their young family, they spent those early years pouring all of their love and attention on their only son. On March 13, 1990, Olivia was approached by her seven-year-old son. As with many afternoons, Aiden's request to spend the remainder of the day running the massive property came even before the lunch dishes had been rinsed as with most afternoons olivia approved the request with a beaming smile and a reminder to be back in time for dinner he raced out the back door and she watched him run across the backyard and through the nearby tree line celebrating the privilege all the way she knew she wouldn't see or hear from him for the rest of the afternoon and that was true but dinner was ready around five thirty and she still had not heard from him. By 6 p.m., Travis was home from work. Dinner sat cold on the table, and Aiden was still unaccounted for. While this was not a regular occurrence, it wasn't unheard of for him to lose track of time, lost in some boyhood adventure. They assumed this was the case. To be honest, they were more annoyed than concerned, and they set off to find him. Nothing could have prepared them for how wrong they were. They retraced his path out the back door, across the backyard, and through the tree line. It was in a pond about 50 yards from that tree line. They found their son floating, face down. He had fallen in and drowned. Travis leaped into the water and swam to him, dragging him to the nearby bank. But devastatingly, he was beyond resuscitation. Travis and Olivia were destroyed Sadly, as in many cases Their relationship simply was not strong enough to bear the terrible loss Blame was cast on each other and themselves An unavoidable result of such unmanageable and visceral guilt Olivia's regular life soon fell by the wayside Friends, family, church And even Travis were soon forgotten She rarely even left the house. And by the one year anniversary of Aiden's death, the formerly content family had dissolved entirely. They divorced, and Travis pulled up stakes for Boston in hopes of putting the tragedy behind him. Olivia had the opposite reaction. She chose to stay there on the ranch. She lived alone, secluded, surrounded by nothing but the 15 acres of land that had taken her son. Aside from one quick sighting by a neighbor in the winter of 1991, no one ever saw Olivia again. Attempts to reach out to her were made over the years by family, including Travis, but phone calls and letters were ignored. Visitors to the ranch were greeted by the silence of what appeared to be an unoccupied dwelling. Groceries were ordered and delivered once a week until December of 1993. Other than that, Olivia lived in complete seclusion from the outside world. There was no way for neighbors to know for sure if she was even still living there until February 27, 1994. The Salina Police Department received a 911 call. 911, what's your emergency? 911, what's your emergency? if you need police the dispatcher immediately went about tracing the call but before the trace could be completed another call came in what's your same unnerving silence it's soon a third call came in just like the first two and all three calls were traced back to the same address the home of Olivia Maybell, the Footlights Ranch Car 36 responding. when patrol arrived at the home Officer they found it, it to be team. locked up tight Every window in the single-story ranch was painted over, and the front door had gone unused for so long that it was visibly swollen in the frame, rendering it useless. Convinced that this was something more than a series of unintentional calls, the police erred on the side of caution and forced entry into the desolate domicile. What awaited them inside was something that would be pondered over and debated in their department for the next twenty years. For all intents and purposes, the house appeared as though it had been abandoned years ago. A thick layer of dust covered everything. Heavily mildewed cobwebs hung from every hard edge in the home. As they made their way through the house, room after room looked completely undisturbed, let alone lived in. This was the case consistently throughout the 3,000 square feet of space, until they reached the room that had once belonged to the couple's deceased son, Aiden. This room stood in stark contrast to the rest of the house, looking exactly as it had four years ago. Toys put away in bins, books ordered from tallest to shortest on the shelf, stuffed animals lined up at the foot of a hastily made bed. Not a speck of dust, not a single cobweb. Centered in the room sat an oak rocking chair, where they found Olivia Maybell. Nightgown, slippers, dead. Held tightly in her decaying hands was a small doll wrapped in the scraps of old clothing that bore a striking resemblance to her tragically lost son. Reports from the scene would later be confirmed by a coroner's report that found Olivia had been dead for at least two months. Sat directly in front of her was an altar built on top of an end table from the living room in honor of Aiden. Photos and drawings of him surrounded by still-lit candles. Fresh flowers and a handful of his most treasured possessions. Scattered throughout the altar were crumpled sheets of paper covered in carefully penned letters from a deeply grieving mother to her late son. While obviously distraught by this terrible scene, investigators couldn't help but ponder the obvious question who had made those 911 calls? The event was described thoroughly in a report filed by Officer Francesca Santiago, who was first on the scene. Other than the police entry point, there was no sign of forced entry. There was no sign that anyone had been inside the home in months. Each of the home's windows and doors was locked from the inside. The thick layer of dust found throughout the home included a heavy, undisturbed layer on the only telephone on the premises. The situation took an even more baffling turn upon inspection of the letters found on the altar. One letter in particular stated, quote, My Aiden, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I should never have let it get like this. I'm leaving. I will not let you keep me, you vile, evil creature. Mommy's coming for you, Aiden. My sweet Aiden. Mommy loves you. What truly perplexed investigators was the fact that this letter was dated February 27, 1994, the very day that they had discovered her, the very day that the 911 calls had been made. Deeper than a simple altar of reverence, a more thorough investigation showed that Olivia had been experimenting with occult rituals. Small note cards found scattered on the altar were covered in Sanskrit characters that were later found to spell, to build, or construct. Many believe that Olivia had spent her final years attempting to construct a tulpa, a thought form, an easy theory to support when considering her obsession with her late son, her intense isolation, the altar, the doll found to mimic her son's appearance. Could she have found a way to channel her unbelievable grief into an entity bearing the appearance of her son? According to Tibetan Buddhism, and later 19th century theosophists who redefined the term, a being can be created through intense mental and spiritual discipline, a living concentration of thought and intention. One must consider the acute desperation and fierce regret of a grieving mother, the intense obsession with regaining that which was lost, It is important to understand here that, according to theories developed over centuries of study, if this being was created from this intense negativity, one could assume that it would reflect the negativity that powered its creation. Could this living embodiment of grief have gained enough power to gain autonomy? Could it have turned against its creator? Officer Francesca went on to note in her report that all the officers on the scene felt a powerful, aggressive presence. They were constantly troubled, emotional, and felt watched at all times within the home. In 1997, the home was purchased by Christopher Hagen for far below market value. He planned on renovating and flipping the large property. It has been on the market now for 25 years. Hagen says that any prospective buyer who has toured the house has been immediately turned away by the apparent oppressive energy. He himself has experienced a full range of paranormal occurrences since renovating the property. In 2005, paranormal investigator Drew Navarro visited the property to conduct an investigation. Following her time spent on the ranch, Navarro claimed that in her considerable experience, she had never been witness to a presence so imposing. In fact, she struggled with even keeping her breath upon entering the house. She reported, quote, A constantly shifting energy, erratic, like a jealous child throwing a tantrum. She bowed out after just two days, informing Hagen as she left the property that he should stay away from the home until serious intervention could be conducted. The residence has been vacant since that day. So, what happened on that fateful afternoon? How were three phone calls placed to emergency services from a home empty of life for months? From a telephone covered with months of undisturbed dust Was this a classically tragic tale of a grieving mother Who slowly died of a broken heart Or could this have been the result of something even darker Is there a chance that In the pit of unmitigated despair she found herself in This grief-stricken mother manifested into reality Some dark energetic version of her lost child We may never understand what happened that day But we do know that, regardless of what directly caused her death, the last five years of her life were marred by a level of psychological brutality that no one should ever face. A tragic and mysterious end to the otherwise happy and productive life of Olivia Maybell.
0: Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts, I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan.
1: And now, an ad break.
0: Greetings, Starseeds. It is I, the all-knowing alien, channeling this message for you.
1: Our Oracle deck lands. Kickstarter
0: five one 2022 20, Join us today at Celestial Alien Oracle Instagram. And now the debrief. All right, this is All right. yeah, this is a this is a weird one. This is a weird one. Um, is that like that? It's definitely different than our normal ghost encounters, absolutely like poltergeist, anything like that. I mean, it's 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 very far from anything we normally do. Which we may say that sometimes. I actually say that a lot. Like this is something yeah. way different. All right. Um. No, but I I really like, especially with this one. It's not even a mystery. Yeah. Because there's way more to it. Yeah, I mean, pointing out immediately, which I will we'll brush on, but like the fact that she's been there, she has this letter dated for that day that the police found her. She's obviously been dead for two months. Um, yeah. you know, like little things like that, like you know, they really set this aside from, you know, from the norm that uh, we normally cover. So
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly odd, right? Right, and I think the official story was that she had like post-dated some of the letters.
0: But, but how do you post date letters? So th- I guess this is what this is where I really have a I have a I have a question because how do you like post date and anticipate specifically on this date that these her body's going to be found, these letters are going to be found, right. but also these random calls to the police station to nine one one. On this particular date as well, yeah, that's a big if one. She's been dead for over two months.
1: Yeah, see,
0: my my main problem with the
1: the idea of them being post dated is no letters were found that were that were dated for the future. You know what I mean? Like, how would she know to stop on the day
0: she's right, discovered? Exactly, unless yeah, she was in cahoots with somebody that was also on the outside. Oh, yeah. Like maybe the husband, maybe the husband, he was actually a part of it, and he claimed that he never heard anything from her or whatever. Um, but secretly, had been.
1: Maybe he made the calls. Maybe, but they were traced to that house, and there was no
0: evidence of anyone else being there. Right? Maybe he. Fa- maybe he disconnected the phone. He had oh. an actual normal phone because it said like even the even like the dust on the phone was unsettled. Or not untouched, rather. Right. Um, You know, hadn't been, hadn't like, hadn't been even brushed on or, or, you know, messed with or anything. So, like, maybe he, like, connected the phone line, used it, and then disconnected and left. Yeah. See,
1: I hadn't thought of that. But if someone else, even if it wasn't the husband, if anyone else had placed the call, it is kind of odd for a 3,000 square foot home, even in 1994, to only have one telephone yeah
0: exactly you and know that's and that's yeah i, I think so too I mean i'm, I'm sure, sure he could there have was easily... at least another connection or something somewhere
1: yeah so if someone else had was there and made the call they could have easily just disconnected the phone from like the kitchen you know what i mean and taken it with them
0: yeah because on yeah. a phone cord i mean the phone is not going to develop as much dust first of all as like the actual phone itself um, sure. but regardless that's you know that's that's not even what like this brought about or was discussed it was the yeah. fact that like this single phone line hadn't been touched so I guess that's my that's my thing like I find I don't know man I find it really hard to just believe or maybe fathom that this was all done on this single line. Like there had to have been something else at play, but I mean, I don't yeah. you know we we talk about like hauntings and and stuff like that all the time, whether this was a specific Tulpa that caused all this activity um, I don't know any that's gonna take the time to call the police, but you know i've you know that's it's yeah. gonna be a new type of thing as well um I, that's one of my biggest thing is where did this call come from? obviously, it came from the house, yeah, but like yeah I just think that there's something else that could explain that, yeah I'm I guess my question
1: is though like it would make more sense if it was like someone else in the house making the call if she had been killed that day. you know what I yeah. mean like maybe someone came in and killed her and then placed the the calls and then took the phone with them like that was the only thing they touched, so they just unplugged it and brought it with them. Um, but like she died months before, or maybe
0: she was writing all these letters that were, she was dating, right? She was dating ahead of time. And the last one that she wrote before she died was this one dated on this specific date. And let's say the husband or somebody else that happened to get into the house found it. So they decided on that date, they would go ahead and call the police um you know just to match up with the timeline as far as the letter that seems so odd though right exactly it does i know i mean
1: far be it from me to assume anyone's motives but like i would assume that if you like go to visit your you know grieved ex-wife and you find her dead in the house you probably just call the police and say (laughs) hey
0: my wife right. is dead and this but house. at the same time like what if like it became a thing where he started reading all these things started to uh, see like all of these like how much his wife we'll we'll say the hu- the ex-husband for a moment started okay. to see like how much she had invested into trying to develop this thing or trying to communicate with the uh, with the lost son Um, where it became a thing where he started to invest time into it. Okay. Maybe he started to bring in fresh flowers, fresh candles. Like, you know, he, he started to like, after she had died, maybe he didn't want to dispose of the body. He didn't want to do anything. Like it was his way of like trying to carry off where his wife had left. Maybe he he was trying to like contact with her and the son. Um, you know like it's hard to say we don't know but you know i didn't i didn't do any digging
1: into like corroborating his whereabouts during that last couple months that would be good to know know. right exactly supposedly he had moved to boston so okay um i mean not to say he couldn't have come back right right like i kind of like that idea of him showing up and like realizing what she'd been doing and like Maybe she was on to something, and he like picks up where she leaves off.
0: Yeah, maybe you like know? you know his his way of leaving things behind like finally caught up with him, and he tried to go back, and then by that time she was already dead, and right. but like he found all these things and found the shrine and everything, and like all this information or whatever she was trying to like achieve, uh, if she was trying to basically manifest a tulpa. Um, and then he's, he tries to do the same thing, basically bringing his family back together.
1: Yeah. See, because the, the more supernatural angle to this would be that she accomplished creating this Tulpa. Right. right? Yeah. And the Tulpa was basically built of her grief and pain and that would have created a, a negative entity. Right. Yeah. Because all the energy that it's built from is negative energy, right? But um,
0: the, yeah, that's that's where like part of my confusion kind of comes from, though. Is it, we we talk about tulpas a lot and yeah. the ability to manifest something specifically from nothing, if yeah. you give it that much credibility and focus on it that much, and like really put everything you have into creating this thing or talking about it or manifesting it or whatever else. Right. Yeah. And so I guess my, my, I guess my question or the, like the conflict I have with that is, yeah, it's creating this negative thing that's building up. Why Hmm. would it wait to list specific day that this letter is specifically post-dated or dated for, um, call the police, like, you know, all these little things that yep. I wouldn't expect uh, to happen from that.
1: I mean, even farther be it from me <laughs> to assume the motivations of a tulpa. <laughs> right? Yeah. But <laughs> right? You know, um, it just that's yeah. That's yeah where, you're like, right though. It's weird. It's,
0: it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, we talk about tulpas often in like the psychosocial version of it like we talk about like the Poplik monster being a tulpa because
0: of the impact it has on the world right. right basically believing in something and so so much that it becomes a thing because of how much it's right.
1: brought that up it right it affects the world whether it exists materially or not exactly right? yeah yeah and that's often how we how we reference tulpas but in this case we're talking about like a tulpa that gains so much strength, it literally exists in the ma- on the material plane. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it becomes a physical thing at that point. Yeah, a physical entity. Yeah, and I have some stories for you about tulpas
0: over okay. the years. Yeah, that, that like maybe the, that'll help kind of bring to light more of this, yeah. more of like what we're experiencing here. Yeah. So, I'll I'll just tell you a little bit
1: about. Like the history of tulpas. After we we go through some some tulpa talk, um, we'll come back around because there are some some more points about this specific case that that we should get to. All right. Um. So like, first of all, with tulpas, it's a lot of people just have this modern idea that is developed about tulpas, but it's important to understand that. It as a concept it was basically hijacked from Tibetan Buddhism. Right? That's where it originates. Right. Which
0: is what we'd was kinda of talked about briefly in the story, just the origin a little bit.
1: Yeah. So like like, um, turn of the century, like turn of the of the nineteenth century. The theosophists from that time period, like, um, Oh, what's her name, Madame Blavatsky? Those those like spiritualists of that okay. era of like the early mm-hmm. 1900s, they kind of hijacked it and turned the idea of a tulpa into like a boogeyman. You know, like that you could that, turn things. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, um, but like, and that that whole movement is huge. Like the Theosophist movement. It's basically responsible for, like, everything that we consider, like, I mean, a lot of parts of what we do now, of the things we cover. Yeah. Like, everything from, like, Ouija boards and tarot and seances, and, like, right up to, like, Western Buddhism, and, like, the New Age stuff, like, yoga and meditation and all that stuff. All that stuff is, like, it branches out from that original movement. Okay. Like... Basically their idea was to take, their whole goal was to like find the link between or make sense of spiritualism and science together. So they were doing these like seances with like, they were the first like ghost hunters basically. They were like doing seances with like these weird little gadgets in the room and like measuring things while they were doing seances and doing tarot readings and Like
0: almost like a modern day like paranormal investigation sure yeah but like they were pulling
1: a lot of concepts from from like eastern mysticism and basically like molding it to fit their their goals and the idea of the tulpa was one of those one of those things um okay so there's this there's this woman she was like the first person who really wrote about tulpas in the west um her name was alexandra david neal and she was like a world traveler all right back in like the early 1900s she wrote like 30 30 dollars she wrote like 30 (laughs) books on eastern mysticism and like documenting her travels around the world that's I mean that's yeah
0: that's pretty yeah. pretty incredible for sure
1: yeah it's pretty she has a pretty awesome life like her story is pretty pretty gnarly um, but she actually in one of her books she actually or for one of her books she actually spoke with the Dalai Lama about Tulpas
0: that would be awesome yeah like I'm actually sure had that a conversation with them. a crazy conversation for sure yeah so I actually have a quote
1: from the Dalai Lama about Tulpas. Nice. Okay. Okay, so he says, A bodhisattva, which is a being who's attained like a high degree of spiritual enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Right. So a bodhisattva is the basis of countless magic forms. By the power generated in a state of perfect concentration of mind, he may at one and the same time show a phantom or tulpa of himself in thousands or millions of worlds. He may create not only human forms, but any forms he chooses, even those of inanimate objects like hills, enclosures, houses, forests, roads, bridges, etc. He may produce atmospheric phenomenon as well as the thirst-quenching beverage of immortality. Um, and then it... In the book, it says the the latter expression I've been advised to take in both literal and symbolic sense. Um. So like, he's basically describing the the Buddha, the legend of the Buddha. So like, when you talk about lamas, they're they're basically like they're considered a reincarnation of the previous Dalai Lama. Okay. Right. But they're simultaneously considered to be a material manifestation of the Buddha himself.
0: Right. I mean, it, it takes someone right. that's like extremely heightened, yes. mentally, physically, spiritually. Yeah. In that sense, right.
1: So, like a lot of people who point to like, oh, tulpas are just stolen and misunderstood from Buddhism. They'll say like, the Dalai Lama is a tulpa. In in actual. Buddhist tradition. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not exactly true because he's he is a Tulpa, but he's something else. They consider him a Tulpa because he's a, a material manifestation of the
0: spirit of the Buddha. Right. That's a right. physical. Yeah. Right. Like um, a physical but, representation.
1: Yes. But there's more there's a lot more to it than that. Okay. Right. And obviously I'm a white guy in Indiana and I don't <laughs> know.
0: You know what I mean? Like yeah yeah for sure i'd love to actually
1: i'd love to actually speak with someone who really knows about it right who's like really deep into it but like that's what i gather is it's it's way more complicated than just like it was stolen and it it's completely misunderstood
0: i've never i've never studied like buddhism or anything uh you know every every bit of knowledge i have is just kind of general like things that i've learned over the years um but like That explanation from the Dalai Lama that we're talking about here, uh, Mm -hmm. talking about like you know, these tulpas being basically having like thousands of forms, thousands of representation, uh, things that they can be resented or represented by, uh, whether it be, I think you even mentioned like hills or like this or that. Like, um, yeah, I mean, I think honestly, that's that's something to definitely take note of, yeah, because when we when we talk about tulpas generalizing them we talk about them as a specific form like like you mentioned with uh with the goat man you know like it being yeah. such a like widespread thing that like eventually like you know these these things that people talk about like whether they be boogeyman whether they be um you know people that don't believe in ghosts and like people talking about ghosts being like that could be specifically like a tolpa if you want to yeah. consider it as such um just because of the way that people like talk about it and like bring to, bring them to life cuz they yeah. are bringing life into these things specifically yeah. like manifesting them from nothing to something um yeah. so that's where like seeing them represented or even like imagining them represented as... like like hills, mounds, like mountains or like yeah, valleys or whatever else. I mean, why not, you know? Yeah. So Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it it kind of it kinda of changes the way that I perceive yeah. Tulpas in a sense.
1: See, that was in reference to like Tulpas of the highest order, right? right. Like the yeah. most powerful the like basically he was talking about like the the state of tulpa that can be reached by like a bodhisattva by like someone who's yeah that's spiritually super, enlightened yes yeah, super spiritually enlightened like yeah. the top tier of enlightenment um so basically the like the like lower level version of this that existed in within buddhism tibetan buddhism was it was more often described as like something you could create a copy of yourself. Okay. Right. So like in this first story that she documents in her book, actually, and I'll put the link in the bio for, for the book and it's fantastic. Like I couldn't stop reading it. Um, but this first account is, it's very much that where, yeah, I'll, I'll just read it to you. It's really yeah. short. Yeah. I, I,
0: Cause I have a couple of questions for sure.
1: Yeah, it's called The Servant Wangdu. So, a young Tibetan who was in my service went to see his family. I had granted him three weeks leave, after which he was to purchase a food supply, engage porters to carry the loads across the hills, and come back to the caravan. This is as she was traveling through India. Okay. Um, Yeah. Um, Most likely, the fellow had a good time with his people. Two months elapsed, and still he did not return. I thought he had definitely left me. Then I saw him one night in a dream. He arrived at my place clad in a somewhat unusual fashion, wearing a sun hat of foreign shape. He had never worn such a hat. The next morning, one of my servants came to me in haste. Wangdu has come back, he told me. I have just seen him down the hill. The coincidence was strange. I went out of my room to look at the traveler. The place where I stood dominated a valley. I distinctly saw Wangdu. He was dressed exactly as I had seen him in my dream. He was alone and walking slowly up the path that wound up the hill slope. I remarked that he had no luggage with him, and the servant who was next to me answered, Wangdu has walked ahead. The load carriers must be following. We both continued to observe the man. He reached a small chorten, which apparently I looked up is like a stone pillar. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he reached a small chorten, walked behind it, and did not reappear. The base of this Chorten was a cube, was a cube built in stone, less than three feet high, and from its needle-shaped top, of, top to the ground, the small monument was no more than seven feet high. There was no cavity in it. Moreover, the Chorten was completely isolated. There were neither houses, nor trees, nor undulations, nor anything that could provide a hiding in the vicinity. My servant and I believed that Wangdu was resting for a while under the shade of the Chorten. But as time went by, without his reappearing, I inspected the ground around the monument with my field glasses, but discovered no one. Very much puzzled, I sent two of my servants to search for the boy. I followed their movements with the glasses, but no trace was to be found of Wangdu nor of anyone else. The same day, a little before dusk, the young man appeared in the valley with his caravan, He wore the very same dress and the foreign sun hat, which I had seen in my dream and in the morning vision. Without giving him or or the load carriers time to speak with my servants and hear about the phenomenon, I immediately questioned them. From their answers, I learned that all of them had spent the previous night in a place too far distant from my dwelling for anyone to reach the ladder in the morning. It was also clearly stated that Wangdu had continually walked with the party. During the following weeks, I was able to verify the accuracy of the men's declarations by inquiring about the time of the caravan's departure at the f- at the few last stages where the porters were changed. It was proved that they had all spoken the truth and had left the last stage together with Wangdu, as they said. So basically, this guy, imagining arriving at the... at the, um... the woman's caravan... had... The idea is that he had created a tulpa of himself arriving there, Hmm. right? Yeah. And so, so much so that she saw it not only in her dreams, but in reality, she and another servant saw him walking up the path, this tulpa of him arriving, you know, like bringing to fruition this thought that he was so focused on. Yeah.
0: Even after they had watched him basically disappear into this monument or whatever it was right yeah
1: yeah so i thought that was a super cool it's also a a really interesting these these are this is kind of really weird yeah this is what you often hear about in tulpa stories from from this time period it's like someone is so focused on a goal that it that a phantom basically of themselves accomplishes it right it's the whole concept of like um visualization right
0: that that's what like brings me to question and and it's completely it's going to be completely off topic and i know it's a whole other type of topic but like the fact that like you can essentially manifest a tulpa of oneself is that almost the basis where we get doppelgangers See it could be
1: and these go hand in hand sometimes especially once once the idea is taken over by theosophists mm-hmm. in the in the late 1800s it really they start to get blended so you hear stories like like back last October we covered the um the story William Williams you remember that one
0: I'm struggling right We did
1: now. <laughs> the um by Edgar Allan Poe his oh, story yeah, 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 William yeah, yeah. Williams yeah. Okay, about the doppelganger. Mm -hmm. So, like those concepts, because the doppelganger was a really heavy theme in, like, in darker literature of the early
0: or of the late eighteen hundreds. I mean, doppelgangers are often seen as something altogether dark as well. Right. Yes. Yeah. So,
1: I think maybe that blending with the concept of a tulpa is might be what's responsible for it sort of becoming a boogeyman. Yeah. You know, a darker concept. Mm-hmm. Once theosophists got a hold of it, um, yeah, because guys like Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft, they had like a huge influence on the
0: theosophist movement. Of course, yeah. I mean, that's that's where a lot of like a lot of their writings and things kind of came, like originated from. Like you know, the basis yep. of that kind of started from. But yeah, Just a lot of those dark concepts
1: i i kind of think of it the same way that like sci-fi of the 20th century has influenced the growth of technology right of course like you have right. like jules verne writing about submarines like 50 years before they're invented yeah right it like inspires the invention it's, it's of. it's almost like the
0: idea of it and then it's like okay well you know this it theoretically could be possible so why not right. like try it out explore it yeah yeah, yeah. um
1: I have another for you. All right, yeah. Let's hear it. Ready? Okay. This one is called The Painter. Okay. So, a Tibetan painter, a fervent worshiper of the wrathful deities, who took a particular delight in drawing their terrible forms, came one afternoon to pay me a visit. So, this is a guy who painted, like, evil monsters from mythology.
0: Which, again, reminds me of H.P. Lovecraft's, you know... Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Also, like, all of you who
1: listen to the show who are, like, cryptid artists, be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Because God knows what you're creating on accident. Right. By drawing your, like, 45th dogman portrait. Be careful. Okay. To resume. I noticed behind him the somewhat nebulous shape of one of the fantastic beings which often appeared in his paintings. I made a startled gesture, and the astonished artist took a step a step towards me, asking what was the matter. I noticed that the phantom did not follow him, and quickly, thrusting my visitor aside, I walked to the apparition with one arm outstretched in front of me. My hand reached the foggy form. It felt as if touching a soft object whose substance gave way under the slight push, and the vision vanished. The painter confessed in answer to my questions that he had been performing a dubthab rite during the last few weeks calling on the deity whose form i had dimly perceived and that very day he had worked the whole morning on a painting of the same deity in fact the tibetans' thoughts were entirely concentrated on the deity whose help he wished to secure for a rather mischievous undertaking so a dubthab is like a magic rite or like a conjuration okay. basically yeah um yeah that is like it's used for like good and bad in in the in their theology um so yeah, the guy spends the whole morning painting this monster, this deity, and focused on it, he even performs a rite to try and summon it right to help him, and then, as he's so, approaching her, she and he <laughs> sees
0: it, yeah, behind him. So as he's trying to like summon it, as he's creating it, is it more for like creative energy that he's trying to put into it that he doesn't realize says, he's actually manifesting
1: uh, something physical? Man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because in their belief system, you would perform one of these tabs, these rites, to try and gain like. It sort of reminds me of in like um in Greek mythology the way. Sailors before they set sail, they would like spend hours praying to Poseidon, yeah for like for help and mm-hmm. guidance during their trip, of course, it's sort of like that, yeah. right, so like he she said he had some mischievous undertaking coming up, okay. some like some he was about to get into some shit, and he thought he needed some help, so he performed this ritual to try to like gain the favor of this deity, yeah, <sighs> and accidentally the thing unleashed it basically (laughs) and right yeah wow yeah but again it's just like it's just a thought form as soon as she touches it it like it vanishes it dissolves in front of her like Mm -hmm. it's literally just a physical embodiment of his focus of
0: his concentration right which you know a lot of this like I, you know, a lot of things we can, we can manifest, whether it be some ideal, some idea, some something specific, like, say you, you draw whatever it is, I mean, you know, anything, right? And like, this is where dreams come into play. And yeah. this is where I think a lot of this may stem from too, is it's something that's invoked basically from dreaming because in dreams, like you can create anything, especially if it's something that you've like. Put all this focus into that does become something physical, even if it's just temporary, you know, temporary for your mind to grasp what's essentially been created. And so and that's where I think a lot of these do stem from. Yeah. Um You know, it might not have been some physical real like real time thing that was like evident or whatever else, but something that may have stirred from you know like i said just just in dreaming it up or something like that like i mean obviously you know i i don't know i'm i'm just hearing the story back and everything and just kind of right. giving my two cents but yeah i think with anything i think it's a hundred percent possible to create and manifest something physical but like i said and a lot of it is going to be within your own head though at the same time still right.
1: yeah and that's that's where the line blurs, right? So, like, that's where you really see the difference between the idea of, like, the psychosocial to- tulpa, where something... where the idea just becomes so prevalent that it begins, you know, affecting the world uh, as much, if not more, than it would if it were a physical being. Right. Right? The line between that and this... This older and more, like, um, esoteric idea of it actually becoming a physical entity on this plane of existence, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's where it's, like I said, it's, it's more so, I guess, just depending, I guess, situational, but... I mean, the thing is, like,
1: the big question here is, like, how much of reality is perception, right? Exactly. So... And if you get into like the collective unconscious, if enough of the collective unconscious is focused on a on a concept, then is that a powerful enough catalyst? I guess to to make it physically manifest mm-hmm. in reality, right? That's the the whole concept. I have a, one more story I wanted to talk to you. All right. and tell you about. Yeah, yeah. It's she kind of became obsessed with this idea while she was there this author and this, well, yeah. And she decided that she was going to create her own tulpa. Okay. Right. So she chose for her experiment, like the plainest thing she could, she chose like what she chose was quote, a monk short and fat of an innocent and jolly type. So it's basically this like Friar Tuck type character. Not even like a Tibetan monk, like a Western monk, right? Um, This is another quote from her about the process. She said, I shut myself in psalms, which is a period of seclusion, um, and proceeded to perform the prescribed concentration of thought and other rites. After a few months, the phantom monk was formed. His form grew gradually fixed and lifelike looking. He became a kind of guest, living in my apartment. I then broke my seclusion and started for a tour with my servants in tents. So, if you read the whole story, basically she just locks herself up and she spends all of her time, no matter what she's doing, she imagines this monk alongside her. You know, sweeping the room or, you know, putting away dishes or whatever she's imagining him doing, but she imagines he's there with her all day long. Okay. Right. And according to her, eventually it got to the point where she could physically see him. Like, and I don't know how much of that is like where your
0: imagination begins to take over. See, right. That's what I think. I mean, I think just like with anything and just like with people as an example, like, You know, being in in the dark, you think about something so much of like what could be lurking, you know, in the shadows or in the darkness or whatever else that you start to see things that really aren't actually present. But because you've allowed your mind to kind of play these tricks on you because of it. Right. That's where I think a lot of this a lot of this also comes from. Yeah, for sure she after she leaves seclusion she keeps
1: seeing the monk right mm-hmm. like um she said it got to the point where she no longer felt like she even needed to think about him to make him appear that he was just
0: there all the time right so it's always it's always still even even if she's not thinking about it it's unconsciously in her yeah. in her mind yeah Be- especially after months of seclusion exactly. imagining this right.
1: monk right um she said that over time the monk's appearance changed that he got thinner and more mischievous looking and his actions started to match the appearance like she would start to see him like um doing things, you know, mischievous things. Okay. Right. Um and she felt like she was losing control of him of the tulpa. Yeah. Um at one point a guy comes to visit her and he supposedly sees the monk sitting next to her in her tent. And he like addresses him before he even addresses her.
0: Huh? Okay.
1: And like, at that point she freaked out at that point. And was that guy was, like, actually
0: really there? <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: That I mean, that's the question, mm-hmm. right? Like eventually it freaked because that moment right there, it freaked her out. And she said that she had to quote, dissolve the phantom. Um and she said it took six months of hard struggle to get rid of him,
0: yeah because- I mean because she' spent so long manifesting yeah. this and building it up from nothing to create yeah. something that's with her, and it's i mean like you know you uh, a lot of like you see a lot of like horror movies and stuff like this where like you you Think about, like, whether it be, like, some long-lost twin that, like, died in the womb or something. Um, sure. yeah, you know, like, as an example. And then you start to see them later in life or whatever else. Because, yeah. like, you develop, like, this, like, this mindset. You know, you've thought about it for so long that it becomes something that even, like, in your mind you start to see. And that starts to become part of reality because, you know, you spend so much time developing this. And so it would be really hard to get rid of something like that, though. Yeah. It's almost, it's like, it's it's a habit, right? It's a habit that's that's been formed Um, at that point. That's basically been ingrained in this, like this thought process and everything. Um, So yeah, like, hmm. that's where like, I do question the, the idea of it, even though I know it's, it's entirely possible. It's clearly possible. Right. And this is this is a prime example of that. You know, looking at it that way like you think about something for so long that you develop like you develop this even if it's not real or physical, you're seeing it as something real and physical. Yeah. As just like you and I are because. Yeah. You know, you've, you've created it um and the, I think that's where the whole like idea of you know, tulpas really like really comes through.
1: And that's You know that, and that concept calls to question, like, where is the line between imagination and reality? At that point,
0: there's a very fine line. It's almost like a dissolved line at that point. Yeah, like as you mentioned, like that guy seeing this person, or seeing seeing this thing that she created. What if that was? What if he wasn't really there? Right, and it was her essentially, like you know, manifesting someone see him. Right, like being visited by someone else, like maybe like that's how that's how fine she grew that line to be, sure, and you know, which i don't I don't think is a stretch, you know, yeah, I mean yeah, yeah, I mean
1: you i again I'll reference people who like who explore psychedelic drugs, yeah, right, yeah, exactly like mm-hmm. the people the the things that those people experience during trips. You know, they often come back with these like messages of like, you know, that help them in life. These messages of like, like, we're all connected and, you know, these things that feel like cat posters now, but like they're really like deep, meaningful, Mm life-changing revelations that happen to people while they're tripping. And like, to me, those experiences aren't any less real.
0: I agree. You know what I, I mean? I agree. And it's you know, I've, I've I've read and like heard about stories of people people also using psychedelics and things like that that claim to like see like long lost relatives and yeah. You know, and also share an experiences because you are essentially like in that mind state together that you yeah. can experience these things together. Um, yeah. you know, and and yeah, just as you said like it doesn't It doesn't make it any less, like, any less credible than a physical experience with you and another person. I mean, those experiences
1: are a part of their life. Yeah. Just like going to the grocery store is. You know what I mean? It's just as material and even more impactful. You know? It's... So...
0: And there's there's a
1: whole (laughs) avenue of exploration to to be had there with psychedelics because that's, there are all these
0: stories of that's people going to say, I mean, being yeah, able to experience uh, that like extra parts of your brain that, that aren't used yeah. on a normal day to day basis as well can yeah. create some extremely straight, like crazy things.
1: Yeah. And there's so many stories of people experiencing the same things, you know, like, people who take ayahuasca they see like Mm -hmm. this winged serpent and like there's like very similar experiences across the board for different you know what i mean so there's like a whole concept of maybe it is like transporting your consciousness to uh, to another plane to a
0: a place that really exists it it could be it could be something that really exists or it could be something that like you've heard about these things happening. And then as you experience it, it's like that mindset's in the back of your mind. Like, you know, something else is somebody else, somebody else's like scene or whatever. Then all of a sudden that becomes like a thing, not even thinking about it because it's, it's there. It's subconsciously there. Right. Right. Which is the surface level explanation for, or just the tip of the iceberg
1: for the conversation about like the collective unconscious. Right. Right. Yeah. Is like you absorb all these thoughts that you know all the stimuli from the society you live in and it shapes your mind whether it's in the front or the back of your mind Mm -hmm.
0: it's still shaping you right and that's where colors your experiences and that's where dreams come from right that same that same process right like you're tapping
1: into it yeah yeah but anyway like i said that's a whole separate right yeah it is it is but i think Um,
0: it's also fair to bring that to this conversation even minimally just because like I think that that can be part of a part of these things part of these experiences might be part of what's going on here Mm -hmm. yeah
1: so one thing this monk story reminded me of was a thing I used to do when I was a kid so when I would be in the car on like on long drives well all drives because you know we didn't have, like, iPads or video displays in the backs of headrests or anything. Right, so yeah, we
0: weren't as fortunate was, growing up.
1: Yeah. So what I did to pass the time was I would imagine this ninja, okay, outside the car that would, like, run alongside the car and, like, run along the, like, telephone wires and, like, jump from thing to thing. And I would imagine that every time we drove somewhere. Okay. Right? That, I feel like that ninja was my monk. Like I was imagining him every day, every time I got in the car, and like it really eventually got to the point where like you would just see it, it was, as you
0: were yes as you were in it was that. just
1: there whether right. whether I was like oh I'm it wasn't like I got in the car and I thought oh I'll imagine this guy now mm-hmm. like it was every time I got in the car I looked out the window and it was there
0: uh, there yeah and that's that's I think where even even as you like may grow out of something you know something so like minimal as as that like just you know seeing this thing and you're always in this like this specific space this specific mindset like whatever else you're always looking at you know you're being especially being like a passenger or something else and you're like passing the time that like it brings you back as you're there you know, yeah. it just gets you back in that headspace whether you realize it at the point or not. Yeah. And so yep. and there there you go, you've created that essentially a Tulpa. Yeah. Of this Apparently. of this little ninja. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I believe he was a full a full
1: size ninja. Oh, okay. I just always saw him from a distance. Gotcha. I right? don't know so if he was, he like was always like a tiny guy no he was just always up on like the telephone wires and stuff uh, i was thinking of like
0: a squirrel sized ninja
1: <laughs> awesome okay so <laughs> i wanted to talk about a more modern example all right, yeah of a of a tulpa right okay so this is in the 70s in okay. the 1970s so way beyond you know theosophists have already hijacked the idea of a tulpa they've already like influenced all this occult society And all this. So, there's a guy, Walter Gibson. And a lot of people who listen will will know the name. He wrote, like, he wrote The Shadow. Okay. The pulp novels about The Shadow. It was like a detective superhero type character. Right? He wrote 280 novels of The Shadow. Yeah. So, like, this is what I wrote about him. Okay, the word prolific is actually inadequate to explain how much Gibson wrote. He was known to work on multiple stories at once on different typewriters, wandering back and forth as he had the next set of ideas for each story. He would also type until his fingers were swollen and bleeding and produced an average from 1931 to 1949 of 2 full shadow novels a month. Wow. That's 2 novels, a, a, a month.
0: lot of writing.
1: Yeah, for 18 years, 2 novels a month. Along with other writing projects related and not. So for many years he was the sole writer for the entire Shadow Magazine, which always included the main Shadow s- Shadow novel and several short stories by differing authors. Like he would use different pen names to write different columns in his magazine. So not
0: only is writing 24 novels a year. 24 novels. I get yeah, 24 novels a year. Yeah. For you said 18 years yeah good lord okay so yeah yeah i'm to even i'm not even gonna do the math right now um yeah that on top of also writing other things too
1: yeah okay keeping up this like monthly magazine that he put out that's not where he man. used different I, pen names to write all the columns yeah prolific yeah for sure um but he was also a stage magician and in his, like, earlier life. So, in the midst of a tangent during an interview in 1975, he said the following. I remember talking to Ed Burkholder. He and I had an apartment together down in the village for a couple of years. That's the apartment that's supposedly haunted now. 12 Gay Street. Hansholder said it's haunted. People see a man in evening clothes moving in and out. But that was where I wrote The Last Shadow. And what they're seeing is Lamont Cranston. They're seeing what we call an afterimage, psychic projection, not a ghost. So he was convinced that all that focus, all that writing on the shadow had created this entity. Yeah. This version of the shadow in that house that people now see as like an apparition. They, like it's famously haunted
0: mm. by this shadow That's, creature. It's actually built and stayed in that location. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like I want to cover his
1: story in its entirety for an episode, because it's super cool. Okay. It's like his history is awesome. He's like one of those um one of those like Hemingway era authors where he had these like this wild life that right. contributed to his writing, you know? Um But I think this idea is super cool. Like that he spent so many hours thinking about his character that he created him in reality. That's Jeez. amazing. Yeah, and like the most of of course the most obvious modern example of a tulpa is often cited as being Slender Man.
0: Yeah, I, right? I, yeah, that's and I guess that would be more, yeah, more modern, modernish. Because of course people have done YouTube videos and written stories uh-huh. and everything else on right. Yeah, um, now it's been even turned into movies. Um. You yeah. Know, so yeah, which yep, just another one of those creepy pasta things.
1: But yeah, see, but Slenderman is split into three camps, right? Because you have people who acknowledge that it's just fiction, it's just creepy pasta, right? Spooky spaghetti. Yeah. And then you have the people who believe it's an actual ancient being, right? The people who talk about like there are cave paintings that. Look like it and all that, right? Which I think aliens. those people are probably crazy, but <laughs> not to not to fast judgment. Yeah. I just it's like okay. And then the third camp, of course, is that Slenderman exists, but it's because Slenderman is a tulpa mm-hmm. that all this focus on Slenderman on the internet, primarily, like birthed it into the world, basically. Yeah. I think we can agree at least that Slenderman is a Tulpa in the same sense that like the public monster is a Tulpa.
0: I would agree. I would, I would even say probably more so right on a bigger scale because it's more popular. Definitely. Definitely on a larger scale. Uh, because of like mainstream media and things like that. And yeah, which, well,
1: when 12 year old girls started stabbing each other over it, it kind of picked up speed in the press. Yeah.
0: Right. Uh, There's been a lot of things like, what like, Momo or you know all that stuff like a lot of those things that have come out of like creepypasta stories that end up turning into something that people buy into and And they're really affected by it and then do yeah and then are affected by it and Slender Man I think is taking that to a whole other level for sure uh huh so I I I think that's a great example
1: that case in Wisconsin where the, the 12 year old girls stabbed their friend like 19 times to in order to become a slenderman proxy was yeah. their explanation um that got the most press but like in that year there were like dozens of incidents where people were kids primarily were like violent had these violent outbursts and blamed it on like some devotion to slenderman and was-, was a case where like a girl burnt her family's
0: house down and wasn't it, like, if you go, and and, and now I'm just trying to remember specifically, like, the whole Slender Slenderman movement, um, but, like, if you're, like, chosen by him, like, you go with him, and then you essentially, like, leave yeah. everything behind, right? Whatever You get to,
1: like, go live in Slender Man's house in the middle of the forest or whatever. <laughs>
0: yeah. Whatever you want to consider that to be. Yeah. But, yeah, it's- so...
1: It's definitely affected culture, right, for which sure. makes it real, yep, yeah, I tend to fall into the camp of that where that's the full extent of it, yeah, you know yeah, for sure. that like the effect it's had on people is the extent of its existence,
0: yeah, uh, it's just it's the mindset that the that people put themselves into, believing yeah. in these things, creating them, manifesting them, like developing them into. Something quote unquote physical right. or whatever else because of just that mindset that you're in at the point. Yeah, you know, and ultimately working on the,
1: its behalf.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's at that point, you're basically doing its bidding. And yeah. then the more so you do that, the more real it becomes because you're out there actually doing something for this thing, whether it's yeah, whether it's real or not. You know, at that point it's real because you're doing, you know, you're, you're doing something on its behalf. Like whether it be for some false purpose or whatever it is, you know, you're still doing something physical, something that's in real time for this name and its name. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that is the perfect segue to fully wrap this back around to the story that we started with. Yeah. <laughs> because because there's there are a contingent of people that that don't believe this story at all. Okay. Okay. I, so, mean, I, can,
0: I can see where
1: I can see where somebody wouldn't, you know. Yeah. For sure. So, there's some circumstances that you should be aware of, okay? So other than other than like a snippet of the coroner's report, and i was able to find that and i was able to find the death certificate for the son i could not find a death certificate for the mother which that doesn't really that's not shocking to me it's fairly common for a family to like seal those
0: yeah right um because i mean the son was what four years earlier than the mother's yeah. death so yeah also
1: sealing his would have been up to the parents right and she was clearly not in a state where she would have been making, like, legal decisions, right? Um, and the dad skipped state. Um, so here's the thing. It, this story didn't really gain any prominence online until 2015 when a small production company launched a Kickstarter for a movie based on this story called Thoughtform. Okay. okay. Which it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily. So the question is like, is this real or is it some kind of viral marketing plan? Right. Um, but the, huh. either way, the boy, the boy died. Right. That's real. That's like a real filed death certificate. It, it he did die. It, right. That's 100% whether well, everything true. after
0: the fact was actually true or not. Right. Um, But we've covered a few stories
1: that have inspired film. Yeah, of course. You know, so like to me, that doesn't immediately make me think that this is fake. Yeah. Right? I agree. Um, I agree. There's a solid chance that these guys just. And one of the filmmakers is from this town, actually. So there's a solid chance that he just had. He knew this legend. Right? This. I mean, it was 20. So.
0: 20 years I guess my my first question before you get further into it were you ever to find Uh, the? were you ever able to find a police report on this specific occurrence so not the police report specifically I
1: was able to find several um audio from tv interviews and radio interviews with the now retired police officer who who was the first on the scene who like filed the report. Okay.
0: I wasn't able to find the
1: report itself, but I was able right. to find her talking about the report. Yeah, I feel
0: like if we had the, poli- the actual legit police report, yeah. like you could say there's no way that this was faked because this is, I mean, this is what happened. This was actually documented at that time by, yeah. by the people that were there. Right. Honestly, before we started recording, when I was telling you, there's there are there's a
1: lot of media associated with like a lot of photos, a lot of which almost makes me question it more because it's usually hard to find photos like that like, that are so relevant. Basically,
0: hardcore evidence, right? Yes. Yeah,
1: and that you know it kind of makes me feel like even more so that it might be might have been at least exaggerated. The story may have been exaggerated yeah um there's i mean there's a solid chance that the boy died the mother went into seclusion and she sat in her house and and died of a broken heart yeah basically i mean that's starved to death that's not far-fetched that that happens yeah yeah yes um and that that became legend in this small town right and just slowly details got added to it over the years Right, and I can imagine that being the case.
0: Bedtime stories to keep you yeah. up at night, basically. Right,
1: right. Um, but my thing is, even if it, even if it is, even if the story is fabricated, like, doesn't that kind of make the story a tulpa? Because, <laughs> like you were just saying before, you know, in your yeah. brilliantly accidentally placed segue, like. If you're doing something physical in the name of something, mm-hmm. like you and I are sitting here right now creating media. Yeah. We're like putting something in the real physical world in the name of this
0: story. Right. We're bringing right. this to light now. Right. Creating We're, something out of in it. In a
1: sense, creating it.
0: Right? Exactly. Like,
1: yeah. So I I kind of think it doesn't matter if it's real or not.
0: Yeah. I I I, you know? I have to agree with you. And and that's and that, you know and I hate to beat a dead horse at this point and go back and say it's because of how much we talk about it and how much we you know we actually bring it to life. But that's that's what it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that's like the
1: lesson to be learned, right? Yeah. From like this whole conversation is like And that's kind of the way over the months that we've been doing this show. That's kind of the way I've come to view a lot of these, like cryptids and alien encounters. Is like it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's real or not. Mm -hmm. It's it's a part of human history, right? It's a part of it builds the folklore of of humanity. Yeah, Uh, whether it be
0: culture based or you know just some urban legend or whatever else. Right. it's what what these things are kind of built upon. Yeah, and they continue to like give it that much more life. Yeah. And that's why, you know,
1: we say so often cryptozoology is a social science.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, no. I, it's not about like
1: it's not about whether or not there's a real physical thing running around. It's about how it affects society, what role it plays in human life, right? In like in this existence we all share. It's as real as it would ever
0: need to be. Yeah, exactly. It's essentially as real as you make it out to be. Yeah. And so So
1: listeners, if you have any input on Tulpas, we would love to hear them.
0: Absolutely. I think it definitely opens up for a wide argument across all spectrums because yeah. w- again whether it be urban legend whether it be creepy pasta whether it be some culture based thing that you've grown up with i mean anything yeah like whether it be
1: legitimate physical like maybe there is like let's say bigfoot maybe there is a physical you know bipedal giant ape living in the pacific northwest right you can't tell me at least some of those sightings aren't aren't essentially tulpas. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it, it has to be agreed, right? Yeah.
1: Maybe it stems from something physical and real, but it Bigfoot in itself, the concept of Bigfoot is so much bigger. It's so much more impactful to the world than just a bipedal ape who lives in the forest.
0: Right, I mean... Could you, ever hope to be. You get, you get stuck in that mindset that this is, this is so real and you believe in this wholeheartedly. You're bound to come across something that's going to give even the slightest bit of evidence. Yeah. Because you want it to. Yeah, of course.
1: And, like, hats off to those guys out there trying to physically prove... the existence of these cryptids, right? But, like, you can't shun the sociological aspects of it. I see this more and more where these people who are into, like, the hard science of cryptozoology are... They get upset when people talk about the, like, the psychosocial phenomenon that goes along with them. Right, yeah. Right? And because they feel like it detracts, or you're saying Mm -hmm. that thing isn't real. It takes away from it, and... Right. But it's so important. It's incredibly important. It's a huge aspect of
0: what they are. Yeah. as the legends you, that precede them. You have to be open to realizing, you know, realizing, like, specific things like that. Like, because I think, I think the more you are open to that, the more, like, it's just going to add to it. Yeah. And again the more life that it brings to it because you are open to it. You're allowing yourself to remain open to it. So like you know, it's it's not like it's not that thing that's discouraging against it, right? Yeah. Exactly. I yeah. Agreed. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't I don't know. Uh, you know, I I, I wish that there was more evidence to this story that, like you know we could be like yeah bam here here it is like here's that police report here's exactly when down that day but knowing that that original person quote-unquote like you know has been able to like talk about these things and you know it recount these things and we have like pictures of like this area or whatever else and all we have to hold uh, hold up against is a story yeah. You know, but a story that I'll buy nonetheless because I don't think, you know, just even if the fact that it's not one hundred percent physical, I think just the idea of it and everything that that it's created, it has created this this like presence, this yeah. life that this life that it's built even even within the story itself to make it that much yeah. more real. Agreed. Excellent. And
1: that concludes episode forty three. The Mysterious Death of Olivia Maybell. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry
0: on. And if you want more, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. It's there you will find bonus content, behind the scenes, or just keeping up on our day-to-day, and maybe some swag along the way. It is our way to show thanks for your support and do everything we can to provide you with as much content as possible. Again, that's patreon.com, forward slash Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. With that said, we want to get to know each and every one of you. So please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And lastly, we do have our merch store. You can find the link available on all of our social media or via our link tree. Show your support. Buy a shirt, buy a sticker, buy a blanket, buy a pillow, anything that you want to rep Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling.
1: And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram, the brilliant mind behind the gorgeous music that you hear each week behind the debrief. So go find him at reverentmusic.bandcamp.com or you can visit his Spotify page by searching reverent, R-E-V-E-R-E-N-T. All of these links can be found in the episode description. Go and support him. You both deserve it. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown. unknown.